You know, it was just about a year ago that my oldest son, Wes, got married. And during their wedding planning, uh, we talked at length about what role they wanted me to play in the uh, various events of their special day. And part of what they asked me to do was to give a speech during the reception. And I was especially happy to do that because it enabled me to get the final words of the day. Um, there's something about final words that carry a special kind of gravity to them. Final words are like the last movement of a symphony or the epilogue of a book. And today we finish our summer series through 1 Peter that we've called Forged in the Furnace by looking at the final words of Peter. We're looking at Peter's final words to Christians who were living in ancient Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And as we might expect, Peter's final words carry a certain gravity to them. Now, throughout this series, we've seen that Peter pictures Christians as elect exiles. As followers of Jesus, we are elect. We're, we're chosen by God. Peter opened his letter in chapter 1 by calling Christians God's elect, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus. The triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit is the one who has initiated this relationship we enjoy with God. As God's elect, we're called to be holy because God is holy. We're called into God's family through faith and the waters of baptism. We're called to follow in the steps of Jesus and how we live. And we're called to bring blessing to other people because the God who has called us is the God who blesses others. We are God's elect, chosen and beloved, belonging to God and belonging to each other. But on the other hand, Peter also says that we are exiles who have been scattered. Throughout this letter, Peter uses ancient Israel's exile in Babylon as his primary vision of what it means to be a Christian in the world. For Peter, no matter where we happen to live as Christians, if you follow Jesus, you live as an exile. And because of that, we don't fully belong. We suffer trials. We live differently than those in our Babylon live. Living as exiles means abstaining from some of the things that others around us indulge in because we are exiles scattered in Babylon. And as we've seen throughout this series, people who live in this kind of condition as elect exiles face some pretty heavy temptations. On the one hand, we're tempted to conform to Babylon. During Israel's exile, many people wanted so badly to fit in to Babylon that they became like the Babylonians. And I don't just mean in superficial ways, like how they dressed or how they decorated their houses or how they talked, but in how they lived, what values they embrace, what they believe to be true about the world and God and life. To fit into Babylon, some of God's people forfeited their identity as God's elect. And some Christians today do the same. 
We indulge in Babylon's sinful practices or we accept Babylon's ideas without discernment. And you'll find entire churches that have gone down that road. When we conform to Babylon, we lose our identity as God's elect. But at the other end of the spectrum, sometimes we're tempted to fight Babylon, to try to force Babylon to become like us, to try to colonize Babylon in the name of Jesus. Christians who want to conquer Babylon sometimes talk about building God's kingdom or taking back our culture or waging culture wars in the name of biblical values. And if conforming to Babylon forfeits our identity as God's elect, trying to conquer Babylon forfeits our identity as exiles that God has scattered. 2,000 years of church history bears witness to the fact that every time the Christian church tries to conquer Babylon, it becomes Babylon. That's because in order to conquer Babylon, you have to use Babylon's methods. You have to abuse power, speak in half-truths, threaten violence, perpetrate injustice. And Babylon's methods will always turn you into Babylon. This is why in the 1930s, the, the Christian pastor and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer was so outspoken against the German Christian nationalism of his day, not because he disagreed with their values, he didn't, but because he knew how they were fighting for those values would turn the church into Babylon itself. And it did. To be faithful as God's people, we learn to live in the tension as God's elect who are scattered as exiles. And now we come to Peter's final words to elect exiles. So I'm going to invite you, if you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word today? 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 through 14. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings. And so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. You can be seated. Notice that even at the very end in verse 13, Peter emphasizes these two themes of exile and election. She who is in Babylon. Now, Peter's not writing from the actual literal city of Babylon. When Peter wrote this letter, the city of Babylon in modern-day Iraq, 
had been destroyed. It was mostly in ruins. Bible scholars think that Peter's talking about the city of Rome here, although it really could have been any city that he was writing from. Because for Peter, Babylon has become a symbol for every place in the world as it exists in rebellion against God. And the she in verse 13 is the Christian church, the people of God who were with Peter when Peter was writing this letter. The church, no matter where it's found, lives in exile in Babylon. But also notice those words in verse 13, chosen. Chosen together with you. Another word for elect. Verse 13 reminds us one last time that we are elect exiles, living in Babylon as God's chosen people. And in these final verses of 1 Peter, we find five commands to elect exiles. The first command is to expect resistance. Expect resistance, but not from where you think it's coming from. If you live as God's elect exile, don't be surprised when you experience resistance for how you're living your life. Resistance is to be expected. And it's tempting to see the people around us as the origin of that resistance, as our enemy. Especially if the people in your Babylon see you as, you, as their enemy. When Peter wrote this letter, the Roman emperor was a guy named Nero. And Nero was a tyrant. He hated Christianity. Most people in Roman society throughout the Roman Empire blamed Christians for anything bad that happened in their society. Oh, it's the Christians. It's their fault. Nero's government eventually launched a campaign to get rid of Christianity. In fact, some years after Peter wrote this letter, the Roman Emperor Nero would arrest Peter and have him executed for being a follower of Jesus. How tempting it must have been for Peter and these early Christians he's writing to to see the people in Roman society and to see Nero as their enemy. But Peter does not see it that way. Back in chapter 2, verse 13, Peter wrote that these Christians should live in submission under Nero's political authority. And in verse 17 of chapter 2, he said that Christians should honor Nero. Now, Peter had no illusions about Nero. He knew that he was an immoral, arrogant, narcissistic tyrant. But Peter knew that Nero was not the real problem. His government was not the real problem. Pagan Roman society was not the real problem. Verses 8 and 9 tell us what the real problem is, the real source of resistance. The devil. In the Bible, the, the word devil is a title for an invisible spiritual being, sometimes called Satan or Lucifer. And, and the Bible suggests that this spiritual being was once an angel who rebelled against God, perhaps before creation. 
And now this, this invisible spiritual being leads other fallen angels, sometimes called evil spirits or demons or principalities and power in the Bible, to oppose God and to oppose what God is doing. And the Bible pictures an unseen spiritual dimension of good and evil, of angels and demons that coexists and sometimes interacts with our physical experience as people. Peter pictures the devil here as a ferocious lion on the prowl to destroy and devour the people of God. And Peter's readers would have immediately thought of what they'd seen of ravenous lions with blood dripping from their jaws in Roman amphitheaters, tearing people apart for entertainment. There is an enemy that creates resistance, but it's not who we think it is. Babylon is not our enemy. Your enemy is not secular culture or politicians who differ from your values or activist groups that you think are dangerous. Our enemy is not the media or law enforcement or immigrants or big tech or um, anyone else that a cable news personality might tell us is out to get us. Our enemy is an unseen spiritual reality that opposes God and opposes all that God wants to do. And yes, this unseen spiritual reality might work through people, but that doesn't make those people our enemy. That makes those people victims of evil, prisoners being held captive to spiritual powers that are more powerful than themselves. Living as elect exiles who are scattered means that we will encounter resistance, but not from where we think it is. Now, when Peter wrote these words, nearly everyone believed in these unseen spiritual forces like angels and demons. But a lot of people these days don't believe in the existence of an unseen spiritual reality. Over the last couple hundred years, here in the U.S. and in Western Europe, belief in this unseen spiritual reality has declined. According to the Gallup organization, a decade ago, 68% of Americans believed in the existence of a literal devil. But today, 10 years later, that's dropped 10 percentage points down to 58%. And even many people who say that they're Christians and who believe the Bible doubt this biblical teaching. But here's the problem with disbelieving in the existence of unseen evil. We still have to grapple with the fact that evil exists in our world. And if the origin of that evil is not this unseen reality, we demonize each other. We turn each other into agents and emissaries of evil. Peter is not being naive here. He wants us to expect resistance. But he wants us to know that the people who might resist us are not our enemies. That there is an unseen spiritual reality at work that is the true source of resistance. And notice, Peter doesn't say to go to battle against the devil, but to resist him standing firm in our trust in Jesus. Be alert spiritually to discern when evil is at work and then stand firm in our faith. 
If we're going to live as God's elect exiles, we should expect resistance, but not from where you think. The second command is to live in solidarity with God's people around the world. To live in solidarity with the people of God, with the church around the world. Verse 9 reminds us, you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Do we know that? Do we know that God's family is not defined by our nationality or our race or our language or our, our, our geographical borders? That when we say the Apostles' Creed together as a church, we say we believe in the Catholic Church. And by Catholic, we, we don't mean a particular denomination. We're not talking about the Roman Catholic Church. The Apostles' Creed was written centuries before there was a Roman Catholic Church. The word Catholic from the creed means worldwide, universal. So when we say the creed, we say we believe in the church worldwide. The people of God around the world, we're saying that we're part of, of, of the church in Glendora and in Ghana, in San Dimas and the church in Saudi Arabia, in, in Laverne and Lithuania, in Azusa and Afghanistan. Because if we forget our status as God's elect who are scattered in exile, we begin to confuse our spiritual identity with our cultural identity. Let me give you a very modern practical example of this. In Russia, the official church is the Russian Orthodox Church. More than 40% of the population of Russia are members of the Russian Orthodox Church. And the Russian Orthodox Church is led by a leader named Patriarch Cyril. Now, most Russians who are members of the Russian Orthodox Church see themselves as God's elect, but few of them see themselves as exiles scattered in Babylon. Because Russia doesn't feel like Babylon to them. Over the centuries, their Christian identity has become so intertwined with their cultural identity, it's hard to see themselves as exiles. And so the Russian Orthodox Church is often just an agent of the Russian government. Patriarch Cyril is a former KGB agent. Eighteen months ago, when Russia invaded Ukraine, Cyril gave a speech that endorsed the invasion and promised all of the Russian soldiers participating in the invasion that their sacrifice for Russia would wash away all of their sins. Now, most of the rest of the church around the world, including most of the Orthodox Church, condemned Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Our own denomination, ECO, issued a public statement urging Patriarch Cyril to condemn the invasion. But because spiritual identity has become so intertwined with cultural identity, many Christians in Russia don't discern what's happening. And if we lose our solidarity with the people of God around the world, the same thing could happen to us. Elect exiles live in solidarity with the people of God around the world. The, the third command we find in these final words is to persist in hope. Persist in hope. 
Verse 10, after you have suffered a little while, God himself will restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. That is God's promise to you and to me. No matter how difficult the furnace of affliction might be that we are going through at any stage or season of our life, God promises to restore us, to make us strong, firm, and steadfast. See, despair is the enemy of hope. When you're going through the furnace of affliction, despair is a very real temptation, and despair is like quicksand that threatens to pull us under. Despair tempts us to numb ourselves with drugs or alcohol or rage or apathy. When God sent the people of Israel into their exile in Babylon, Israel was tempted to despair. Their temple was in ruins. Their city destroyed. Their families separated. They worried that God had forsaken them, and so God sent them the prophet Jeremiah, and Jeremiah wrote a letter to those exiles, and in that letter is one of the most famous verses in the Bible, Jeremiah 29.11, where God assured these exiles I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Hope sustains us in exile. Persistent hope. The fourth command we find in these final words is to stand firm in grace. Stand firm in God's grace. In verse 12, Peter says that he's written his letter to testify to the true grace of God, now stand fast in it. God's grace refers to what God has done and is doing for us. Not what we do, but what God does. That's God's grace. You see, we can't build God's kingdom any more than we can fight evil on our own. But we can stand firm in what God has done like a soldier taking their stand, a sentry refusing to cede their position, like a defensive lineman refusing to let the offense in over the line of scrimmage in a football game, stand firm in the grace of God, and God will do what needs to be done. And Peter's final command is to remember who you are. Remember who you are. And it brings us back to verse 13. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you. Never forget that you were chosen by God. You are precious and loved, treasured and held securely in the hands of a loving God. God chose you because he wants you and God will never cast you out or reject you. You can rest in that. But you're also in exile, scattered in Babylon because God has scattered his people throughout the world so as salt and light we can bear witness to Jesus and invite others to become elect exiles along with us. Remember who you are. Final words carry a certain gravity to them. And Peter's final words are no exception. He commands us to expect resistance. Live in solidarity with God's people around the world. 
persist in hope, stand firm in grace, and remember who we are. Centuries before Peter wrote this letter, ancient Israel actually went through two different exiles. If you know the story, after King Solomon's son died, God's people became a divided kingdom. And God's people in the south followed Solomon's dynasty. But God's people in the north made a guy named Jeroboam their king. And you can read all about the years of the divided kingdom in First and Second Kings in the Old Testament. And in the 8th century before Jesus, the Assyrians invaded the northern kingdom and carried God's people who were living in the north into exile. Then, in the 6th century, two centuries later, the Babylonians invaded the southern kingdom and carried God's people living in the south into exile. Two different exiles. God's people from the north in Assyria assimilated into Assyria. They forfeited their identity as the people of God. They adopted Assyrian practices and beliefs and ideas. They combined their beliefs with Assyrian religious beliefs. And what was left was a strange mixture of faith in God and faith in the Assyrian gods and pagan practices. In the 6th century, many people from the south did the same thing when the Babylonians carried them into exile, but some stood firm in their faith. Heroes of the faith, like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Esther, retained their identity as God's elect in exile. Two exiles. And these days, sometimes I wonder, which of those two exiles is most like the church in America today? And some days I worry that we're more like the northern kingdom. It's all compromise or conquest. Forfeiting our identity as the people of God or refusing to accept our role as exiles. When I see churches merely mirror our culture's values and ideas, I fear we're like the North. When I see churches trying to conquer our culture instead of bearing witness to the gospel, I fear that we're more like the North. But other days, I'm hopeful that we're more like those who are faithful in the Southern Kingdom, embracing our exile as the place God has called us, yet refusing to forfeit our identity like Daniel, who flourished in Babylon, yet refused the delicacies of the king's table. Or like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who lived as witnesses to the true and living God, yet refused to bow down to a larger-than-life political leader named Nebuchadnezzar. Like Esther, who risked her own status and safety to save people's lives and speak up for what was true and right. By the time Peter wrote this letter, the people who had lived in the northern kingdom had all but disappeared, swallowed by Assyria, nothing left but a faint memory of the northern kingdom. But many of God's people from the southern kingdom remained, and they remained because they learned to live in exile, 
never forgetting who they were. God's elect, scattered by God in exile for the purposes of God. May we be like them today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these words that are not just for the Christians living in Asia Minor 2,000 years ago, but are also for us today. That your Holy Spirit, who inspired these words, still speaks and addresses us through these words. Lord, help us not be naive. Help us live as your people in our time and in our generation. God, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.